All right, as promised, welcome back to the second part uh, with Dr. Alex Green here to talk about colorectal cancer. But I see a smile and someone chopping at the bit here. I think Danny has a joke. It's time for another dad joke. All right, Brenna, here we go. What country's capital is growing the fastest? I don't know. Ireland. Every day it's Dublin. <laughs> All right. Come on, that was good. That was a good one. <laughs> what? I liked it. No. I, Rick liked the chameleon one better. So, the chameleon one was better. Know. That was the, I wish I was recording that. That was the most genuine laugh I've ever seen out of you. Yeah. Why weren't you recording it? No, like, like videotape. Oh, oh, gotcha. I was going to say, we're not recording Rick, this podcast? Rick does yeah. not typically laugh at my jokes, ever. No, that was a good one, though. He shakes his head a lot. I do shake my head a lot. Sometimes he quietly laughs. He just goes... <laughs> I'm like a disappointed father. I just expect better. (laughs) I don't know how to make my jokes better, Rick. Should should I tell what kind of jokes should we tell here on the podcast? I think your dad jokes are the hit. Okay. I think I'm in the minority. I'll stay in the dad joke. No, I think I'm in the ones that don't. You know, there's only like of our ten active listeners, (laughs) I comprise the only one that doesn't. Hey, Brenna can attest. There's more than ten. There is more than ten. Okay. And Don't international, I many. think, too, right? Yeah, oh my international. gosh, yeah. You know, I haven't checked in a while. Listen, a little self-deprecating humor never hurt anybody, okay? <laughs> I think on the medical oncology side, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have access to some newer technology, like the circulating um, DNA test. Tumor DNA, yeah. Um, Let's go down this rabbit fancy, hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, circulating tumor DNA. Um, has gotten a lot of press lately for colorectal cancer. They've been studying it in a variety of tumors. I remember they, you know, studies were reported five years ago on it, but not really adopted in standard clinical practice. But you're, you're basically taking a patient's pathology from their uh, tumor resection and you're um, doing an analysis to kind of generate primers so that you can do a, basically a blood test to go searching for that tumor DNA in the blood of the patient. And this is after they've had surgery to remove their cancer that you then can do almost a surveillance strategy where you test their blood every two to three months to look for tumor DNA. And what we know is that it's a predictor of, of recurrence, of course. If you have tumor DNA in your blood, that predicts you're going to recur at some time. It may not predict exactly when that's going to happen, but you probably are going to recur and if you don't have tumor DNA in the blood, that, that's a great sign, but we know that that uh, test is only probably 70 to 80% uh, sensitive at picking up on that circulating tumor DNA. So it's not a guarantee that you're not gonna recur, but it is, it is better than the, yeah. the former. So. Um, so we do utilize that test. There are a few companies that are doing it. I'm not gonna name them, but we do utilize that in certain cases. I, I, in my practice, I've generally used it for patients that I feel may be higher risk and maybe weren't either good chemo candidates or, um, or maybe completed their chemo and still I felt like they were high risk. And so I'd like to see whether I can detect any circulating tumor DNA. So, I mean, the way I've always viewed these is you obviously think it's prognostic in the mm-hmm. sense that if they're positive, you th- there's a higher chance their, their tumor will come back. Right. But you also sound like you might use it as an, in a predictive sense, too, in terms of who you think may, may or may not benefit from adjuvant therapy for those on the border or not necessarily. Um, it's a good question. I, I don't think I've used it that way yet to okay. predict, you know, uh, 
whether a patient would benefit from, from treatment. I think it would be nice to see the clear data to say that's the case, that um, you know, if, if we detected circulating tumor DNA at the, after their surgery, um, and then it cleared, and then we know the patient's cured, and, and, and you can follow that over time. I think that's the way the studies are, are set up. They're also stu uh, studying, um, you know, response to immunotherapy in a variety of different cancers that way to see, you know, if you clear the circulating tumor DNA, you know, is that predictive of a better overall survival? So um, I would like to use it that way. I haven't really used it that way yet, but I've, I've used it more um, to determine... Yeah, well, you could say a, a predictor of recurrence, but not really guiding my therapy. Yeah, I think, you know? I mean, the way this was always yeah. at least instilled in me was, mm -hmm. you know, in brain tumors, there's different markers we look at. Right. And we say, is it prognostic or predictive or both or neither? Prognosis, of course, meaning does it predict how well you're going to do independent of whatever treatment you receive? And then predictive saying, does the, if you have this marker will giving this therapy improve your outcomes, which I think is what we ultimately obviously want. Hopefully it is to find things that are prognostic and predictive. I was right. just curious if, if your opinion, we were there yet. It sounds like maybe not quite yet. I don't think quite yet. I think, um, I think there are other markers of, uh, your predictors of outcome for colorectal cancer, like mutation analysis, BRAF mutations, their RAS status, you know, that I think those are more reliable on, um, chemotherapy resistance, you look at MSI, which you, these are all kind of genetic markers to look for how responsive someone's going to be to chemotherapy. Uh, and the reason we give chemotherapy after someone has surgery is to reduce that risk of the cancer coming back. So um, if, if I know that the patient's not going to respond well to chemo just by their tumor being resistant to it, you know, that tells me maybe I shouldn't give them this chemo. And then there are a few scenarios that I would avoid giving chemo because of that factor. Um, so it's very nuanced and a little bit complicated in how we arrive at our decision. Um, I could say generally for stage three colon cancer, which is anyone who has a lymph node metastasis around the colon, we give chemotherapy. Um, and, and the newest kind of data on the block is to say low risk versus high risk stage three we can get away with giving three months of chemo to low risk versus high risk. We give six months always. Um, and uh, older individuals, I sometimes opt to giving uh, monotherapy chemo, meaning just one type of chemo versus younger patients who I think can tolerate a little bit of toxicity. We give a combination of two different types of chemo. So, and now nowadays with immunotherapy being you know used in almost every tumor type, um, there there are trials the water, right? ongoing for adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy, but only in certain circumstances. Like you have certain genetic predictors that that you may use it. So we get those questions a lot, saying, "Can I can I use immunotherapy? Can I use?" Proton therapy. Yeah, you're on. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Rick. Yeah, exactly. No <laughs> problem. Know, so Happy. <laughs> so it, these are great questions, and there's a lot of time trials out there investigating those questions. But um, but I'd say the latest changes to our practice have been the different duration of chemotherapy for stage three disease, utilizing circulating tumor DNA as more of a surveillance to kind of 
tell us whether a patient's going to recur or not. Because um, CEA has been a, a tumor marker we've used for years, Does, which, which you, is just not as good. Do you use the circulating tumor DNA to change your imaging follow-up patterns or frequency you would recommend they see Alex to go back for scopes or their GI doctor to get scopes? Is, is there any data or do you use that to maybe push people to be a little more uh, aggressive with their surveillance? I would personally um, change my imaging surveillance, the frequency if I saw that they started to um, show circulating tumor DNA in the blood. You know, if they came back with a blood test showing circulating tumor DNA when the previous test was negative, I would certainly opt to do imaging sooner than I would just based on the, the national cancer guidelines. Um, I haven't really utilized or say scaled back my imaging because of circulating sure. DNA analysis. Um, I, and I think because I've had a couple of cases where I could detect circulating tumor DNA and the levels even went down, but the imaging findings got worse. Yeah, <laughs> so right. I didn't feel real good about that. <laughs> so, doesn't make you yeah, want to space it so out. Anymore. I don't think we're there quite yet as far as it necessarily telling us what their disease is doing inside the body. And Alex, how do you approach, um, you operate on a patient, let's say they get chemo, they don't get chemo. How do you approach your surveillance um, scopes? I mean, do you tailor it based on their risk, the individual? How do you kind of work your way through all that? Yes, typically, you know, what we recommend is either, you know, uh, me, if they don't have a gastroenterologist or, or frequently their gastroenterologist, you know, we want them to be, have a surveillance colonoscopy, so a full scope one year after from surgery. Um, and again, we're looking for small ev evidence of recurrence. We'll typically biopsy the site where the surgery was done because sometimes you can't even pick it up visually, but there may be microscopic recurrence there. Um, and then for the first few years, we usually do it about every year, you know, and then we tell them at about five years, assuming that's been negative, their scans, um, maybe their circulating tumor DNA is cleared if they had it before, then they kind of return to the normal risk of a, you know, a typical patient, um, in the just general population, um, that's assuming they don't have any symptoms or anything like that. You know, if someone had surgery six months ago and all of a sudden maybe they're having some new pain or weight loss or not going to the bathroom the same, then, you know, from my standpoint, that would trigger talking about a scope just to make sure there's nothing going on there. Because um, if you're going to pick up a recurrence, you want to pick it up as early as possible to, again, kind of maximize the treatments. So I, I think the circulating tumor DNA will have a role. Um, it just, it's Disney more data, you mm -hmm. know, to see where, it, where it's really going to match up. Um, yeah. And I, and I was yeah. actually asking out of a place of ignorance just cause I mean, I knew there was a, a prognostic component to it. I just didn't know if the data was there yet on the predictive component. Yeah. yeah I, I think there were a couple new studies coming out actually fairly recently, um, on, on using it more for the predictive side of things, but I don't, I don't think it's universal. I'd like it to become more universal to where, you know, there, we could use it for all disease types and kind of, um, you know, have, have some predictor, uh, information there, but yeah. I don't think we're there yet. And then just to, for the listeners, you know, radiation's role in regular colon cancer is relatively limited. Um, a lot of reasons for that. One is the outcomes with surgery and chemotherapy are generally excellent. Um, and two local recurrence tends to not be the biggest issue for these patients, which is where obviously radiation um, comes into play. And then of course, localization of the target once it's been removed, you know, the only times, you know, I really would even consider treatment with a, you know, in a colon cancer would be 
if it was up against attached to something where the surgeon couldn't remove it all, there was clear macroscopic disease left behind, no evidence of distant metastasis, then in that situation you can make an argument further local therapy would probably benefit that patient. But thankfully those cases are few and far between. Um, you guys want to transition to rectal cancer briefly just because it's a little bit different? Yeah. What do you think? Just keep going? Yeah, just keep going. Okay. So uh, you want I want to just comment on the last thing you said, yeah. and then this could tie into our rectal cancer conversation, but how do you approach those situations where you have uh, rectosigmoid tumors, you know, mm -hmm. where it's not clear that it's high rectum versus uh, so low this, sigmoid so on, on the anatomy. Side so this is where I think multidisciplinary discussion is absolutely critical because you have what the endoscopist sees in the endoscopy. You have hopefully well done pelvic MRI where you can see, um, you know, above and below the peritoneal reflection, which is what we're looking at. Um, and I would say, even if we think it's a sigmoid started in the sigmoid, but if the predominant of the disease is below the reflection, I think the bias is to treat it sometimes like a rectal cancer versus even if you thought it was a rectal cancer, but it was mostly above the reflection, you could make the argument to treat it more like a colon cancer. So I think it's really the comfort of the communication between myself, the surgeon, the radiologist, the GI doctor, mm -hmm. and kind of just coming up with a consensus. Because it can mean, depending on the situation, a pretty different, you know, fork in the road mm -hmm. um, for the patient. I don't know, Alex, if you wanted to add I, anything I, else to I that. I think a key thing there, you know, uh, from the, the gastroenterologist standpoint, if they're doing the colonoscopy, it's a flexible scope. Um, so some, you know, they're always measuring how far is the, the mass they find from the outside. And that's the key thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we know the rectum is a certain amount of centimeters. It varies by body habitus, you know, male, female, things like that. Um, but it's a flexible scope. So sometimes that can be a little misleading to them because if the scope is a little twisted on the inside or, or looped on itself, it can give a, a distance that's not as accurate. Um, so sometimes if I'm seeing someone in the office, if they can tolerate it, I'll actually do what's called a rigid scope, which is a straight scope, and it gives us a, a more true assessment of the measurement from the outside. Um, and then, but that's where I think even more than that, the MRI is critical because um, mm -hmm. the MRI it's a it's a one point in time. You know, there's no right. scope looping or bending. Um, the patient's you know in a very neutral position, and that's how I look at a lot of treatments. So I, I think it's key. Anyone with a rectal cancer or potentially a low sigmoid cancer gets an MRI. That's really what I go off of because um, that's going to make a world of difference for the patient's treatment regimen. And say if you're the only one that saw that patient, Alex, mm -hmm. then what's your next step if you think that you identified a, a rectal cancer? What do you normally do in that scenario? So if, you know, if I'm doing a scope on someone for you know hemorrhoids or something like that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll you know I'll find CAT scans, you know, of the chest and abdomen, pelvis, and then a pelvic MRI. Okay. And then obviously that'd be a multidisciplinary team approach there, um, yeah. based on the biopsies with with you guys with medical oncology, radiation oncology. Um, and then we kind of go from there. Bring the whole team together. Yeah, right? yeah, I don't, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. That's something you, you want to have everyone's input. Right. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, the MRI is obviously critical for that. And then, you know, the, this is where I think staging, you talk about stage migration all the time. As we get better imaging, you know, hopefully we're able to identify the stages more accurately. Mm -hmm. I think MRIs really change the game with, with rectal cancer in that regard because it's better for nodal staging than in the U.S. Um, or CT scan, it's more sensitive and obviously helping understand is this a colon cancer or is this a, yeah. a rectal cancer? So I think it's important and, uh, you know, unless there's a contraindication to a patient getting an MRI, I think in my opinion, it's part of the standard of care and really should, a step should, that step should not be skipped.
I think it's key. And it's a good way to follow the patient, too. You know, after their initial chemotherapy radiation, after their surgery, um, because there are there's a small subset of patients that just don't respond well to anything. And then you want to minimize what you're doing to them. You know, right. I don't want to put them through a big surgery that's mm-hmm. not going to help them if they're not responding well to the initial treatment. So when, when you guys are giving chemotherapy and radiation up front, it's almost like a test of the cancer yeah. before putting them through surgery. And I feel the same way too. It helps also distinguish, maybe you get someone who needs to go to surgery first and doesn't need chemo radiation. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you thought something was a T3 or a more locally advanced, but it's not. And the MRI helps prove that and you can take it out and then they're done and mm-hmm. they don't need, you know, I think we're all trying to eliminate as much <laughs> treatment to the patient as possible while also giving them the yeah. best chance to, you know, be cured of their cancer. So. It's a it's a um, relatively can can get into some relatively tricky situations depending. Yeah. Um, I think <clears throat> and the, the, for the listeners, that's a, kind of a shift is we're colon cancer surgery for most patients as long as they're not you know metas- widely metastatic surgery is really the the you know initial right. treatment for the vast majority of patients. Whereas in rectal cancer, you know it's some most or some um, are going to be treated with something before surgery and I guess you know Alex from your perspective can you kind of walk the listeners through why there's a difference there between a colon cancer versus a rectal cancer why someone would what would warrant the therapy pre-surgery versus in a colon cancer where you know you're just going to go take it out initially in most cases absolutely so so in rectal cancer you know we're trying to trying to really accomplish two things, I would say. You know, we're trying to increase the length of someone's life, you know, make them live as long as possible, be cancer-free, um, whatever stage they were initially. But we're also trying to minimize the chance that the cancer could come back locally. So it's a little bit, you know, like you mentioned, colon cancer, when it comes back, a lot of times it comes back outside of the colon, um, which is a different animal. But rectal cancer has a tendency to recur where the rectum was removed. Um, which can be very tough to deal with. Um, you know, it can cause a lot of symptoms for the patient, you know, pain, difficulty going to the bathroom, things like that. And, and it can be very tough to remove once it's come back in that area um, because the rectum anatomically sits in around a lot of organs that are tough to, to remove. You know, there's some bony structures, um, the ureters are tough to remove, the bladder, um, things like that. Um, so whatever we can do to surgically prevent it from coming back, um, is better for the patient. So we know that, you know, neoadjuvant or radiation up front and with some chemotherapy, that combined with um, good surgery, you know, which is um, surgery that basically takes out the entire tumor with a margin and then enough of the um, mesentery or where the lymph nodes live of the rectum. If we take that out all intact, those things all combined, we know that decreases the chance of local recurrence. Yeah, I think that's, you know, at least from a radiation oncologist's point of view. Oh, you're good. <coughs> Our Duncan's here, guys, just to let you know. <laughs> so, Alex, I think that brings up a point, you know, was hit home in, in radiation oncology training is how your how the surgical techniques have evolved for the better in rectal cancer, you know, kind of going from where we were historically to, you know, more of a TME or total mesorectal excision, which you were – referencing um where things come out kind of as you know an on block removal and, you know the way i the way i counsel patients and the common question i get is you know why do i need radiation if the surgeon's going to remove it all or if it's after surgery why do i need radiation if the surgeon got it all out you know i think what we, we say is that he removed everything he saw based on the pathology it appears everything's clear but we just know based on 
data and clinical trials that there's still a risk of that recurrence locally. And so my job is to hopefully basically kind of be a janitor and clean up that area um, from anything that, you know, is either left behind after surgery or to help Alex and his, you know, team remove it all um, and, and better chance of getting it all out. So I think that's a little simplistic way to look at it, but sort of the 10,000 foot view of, of why it's important in the rectum, as you mentioned, because if you have a local recurrence, it's, um, it can be a very morbid and, and not a good situation for patients to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I think it lessens anxiety too when the patient knows that you and Alex are communicating with one another at, at the start, right? You're, you're discussing the MRI. You're saying, okay, this is the approach we're going to take. We know you need chemo radiation before I go in and operate. And yes, I plan to operate. You know, it's not that chemo radiation and then you're done, which right. is a lot of the question too that comes up. Can I can I just be done yeah. after radiation is over? Yeah, that uh, and that, we could talk about it briefly, but I mean, I think that's you know, especially for low lying rectal tumors where the patient will be left with a permanent ostomy. I think a lot of patients yeah. want to know: is there any way under the sun I can get get out of it? And sure. you know, I'll just tell you the way I approach it. And Alex, feel free to you know say, disagree or say something else. But I mean, I tell most patients that the standard of care is no. Um, we treat you with, you know, chemo radiation plus or minus chemo before or after plus an APR, which was, would leave you with the ostomy. But that's what is recommended oncologically. There is evolving literature for what we call, you know, you can call it watch and wait or close observation where a patient goes through chemo radiation under a very rigorous protocol of pretreatment, post-treatment surveillance, um, including frequent scopes, both rigid and flexible and biopsies and tattooing and MRIs and all these mm -hmm. things, which, you know, when you tell that to a lot of patients, they actually say, well, actually, that doesn't sound too great. I think I'll just have the surgery. But in that situation where if someone was a, had a complete response, both on the scope clinically, on the imaging radiographically and biopsy proven negative disease, you can have that discussion with the patient, but understanding that, that it's not the standard of care and there is still a higher risk of recurrence. Um, I, you know, I would say most patients, when you kind of explain all that to them and walk through how rigid that follow-up protocol should right. be, I think a lot of people end up going to surgery. I don't know if you have a different way you frame that discussion. No, I, that's but. exactly the same way I say it. You know, no, you know, like we talked about, everyone wants to know that they have a bag. Uh, for most colon cancer, almost no. Uh, but when you're talking about rectal cancer, depending on how low-lying it is, so basically how close it is to the anus or the outside. You know, you're, you're, so there are some people that do require a permanent one, and there's a good subset of people that require a temporary one to allow mm -hmm. things to heal, especially if they've been radiated. Um, this watch-and-wait approach, you know, I tell them it, it's being researched. You know, in New York, it's low Kettering, um, and some other major, bigger cancer centers in, in major me metropolitan areas, uh, but it's experimental still. You know, we're trying to figure out, because there is a subset of people that, probably don't need surgery, but we don't know which ones those are yet. And, we're, and we don't want someone to get undertreated and then have a recurrence a few years down the line, because then you're talking about what's called salvage surgery, um, which is mm -hmm. kind of a nasty thing to deal with. Um, there are some patients that I, I do help follow um, that are undergoing watch and wait. Just anecdotally, what I've seen is that, you know, they're doing well, but it does create a, a significant amount of anxiety. Um, because every scan, every scope, you know, you're just you're kind of expecting the worst because it's not the standard. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that that's a tough way too, you know, to walk through every day. Uh, any yeah. little hiccup or bleeding or something like that, you're kind of thinking, oh no, what is this? Well, I think too, there's a lot of these patients that unfortunately, when their tumor is big enough or advanced enough and it's low lying, their sphincter functions already compromised from the cancer itself. So even if we give chemo radiation and the cancer disappears, most cases that underlying sphincter function is not going to go back to normal. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times patients don't realize that their quality of life, once they get over, of course, as anyone would, the mental hurdle of having to wear a bag, I think a lot of patients come back to you and at least come back to me and I'm sure come back to you and say, my quality of life is so much better now than what it was pre-surgery, pre-ostomy, because it's not like they had good control over their stool Mm-hmm. prior to the treatment. So that's the one thing I always say is, I said, listen, if we get rid of the cancer, I, the treatment itself, whether it's the radiation, may cause damage to the sphincter, but the tumor already has caused damage to the sphincter as well. So you may not even like where your quality of life is afterwards, even if the cancer is completely gone. So I think it's, it's a very, um, uh, as we've been alluding to in a lot of these things, selection is the key. And I think we're just still trying to figure out what that kind of, narrow target is for those patients who don't need to go to surgery. But I think that number is definitely in the, in the minority at the mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Just touching on ostomy bags, you know, I think we're, we're always looking at two things when I'm treating patients, Qua- quantity of life, but also quality of life. Um, Cause we can do a lot of treatments now that can extend someone's life, but if their quality is not good, you know, what, what's the goal there? Um, and you just have to have that real discussion with them. Um, talking about ostomies in particular, you know, no, no one wants that. Uh, but we, we really focus a lot of our education preoperatively and then postoperatively. Um, you know, we're pretty proud of how we take care of patients with, with stomas or ostomies. Um, and I tell people, I, I bet you know someone at work or a friend or someone that you see every day that has an ostomy, and you have no idea. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, again, it's the same kind of thing. It's not 30, 40 years ago um, where someone had a, a bag for whatever reason, and they were struggling with it. Um, it doesn't smell. You know, there's thousands of um, different supplies that are catered to the patient to help take care of it and you kind of go to the restroom just like everyone else does except um, actually you know you have a little bit more control over it in some ways so and this is just my ignorance how is this has the surgical management changed in terms of how you create a stoma or how it's managed is, is that evolved I, at all i think it's evolved in the way that we same thing with minimally invasive <coughs> surgery um, because we're not creating a large incision in the middle of someone's abdomen it gives us a little bit more freedom on where we can place things and we can be a little bit more precise with it you know we actually mark people preoperatively to see where the optimal place would be on their on their abdomen based on their size, you know, where their skin kind of folds, where they like to wear their pants. But when you don't have to keep it away from a large incision, you're a little bit more free to put it in the optimal place for a patient. And that helps them take care of it. Yeah. So, so Alex, really appreciate your time. Um, we know you're very busy and uh, obviously you do a lot for this community and help take care of patients, like you said, from benign conditions to malignant conditions. Is there any place where our listeners can go to learn more about you, about your practice, and maybe get some more information? Yep, that, that would be great. Um, so we have a website uh, where you can find a lot of information about colorectal cancer and the treatments involved. It's uh, www.masjax.com, and we have a Facebook page, too, um, with Memorial Advanced Surgery um, that they can find the links to on our website. So thank, thank you guys again so much for having me. It was great. No, it's our pleasure. Uh, our pleasure to have you here. Thanks so much for coming back and joining us for another episode of Medical Minute. If you have any questions on things we should talk about, questions you'd like answered, or if you just want to say hi, email us at medicalminute at csnf.us. 
And make sure you follow us on social media. Search Cancer Specialists of North Florida on Facebook and underscore CSNF on Twitter and Instagram. As always, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time, and we hope you learned something today. And remember, when it comes to your health, stay informed. Ask questions. And and tune tune in in next time. time.